This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 42. Lupin the Third, The Mystery of Mamo. Don't be stupid. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Tim the Otaku Jock. Hello, hopefully my voice sounds okay. I've had a pretty hectic last couple of weeks, uh, personally. You sound just fine. And returning to the show from the Rocketo Punch podcast, it's Preston. Hi, everybody. And this week, we are going to be talking about Lupin the Third, The Mystery of Mamo, the first theatrical outing for Lupin the Third, released in 1978 by Tokyo Movie Shinsha, under their subsidiary of Telecom Animation Film, naturally based on the manga by Monkey Punch. The movie was directed by somebody who had previously worked on the original Lupin series, Soji Yoshikawa. His only other directorial credit of note that I could find was that he directed that Kirby anime that aired in America as Kirby Right Back At Ya. He was also the writer for quite a few notable mecha anime, specifically the ones directed by Ryosuke Takahashi, including Panzer World Galliant, Fang of the Sun Dugram, and Armored Trooper Votums. Naturally, Yoshikawa, being a Lupin alumni, also wrote the movie alongside Atsushi Yamatoya, who wrote a good chunk of Lupin the Third Part 2. But before we get to the general premise, first, a little bit of a recap, as Tim and I reviewed the original 1971 anime of Lupin the Third way, 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 way back in the day. So... The original 1971 Lupin anime was meant to be the first anime series that was made for an adult audience. Because you have to understand, in 1971, anime was meant for kids and families. There wasn't really any attempts to make a series for that blue-collar man or salary man kind of audience. People who would be reading the original manga, which was very much meant for that key adult audience. And that's what the Lupin anime tried to do in its initial episodes. Unfortunately, though, while the episodes were bold and daring, the first episodes of the 1971 Lupin series were not successful, both critically and commercially, and so the original director for Lupin Part 1, Masaki Ozumi, was fired from the project and was replaced with two up-and-coming animators named Isao Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki. Once the two were installed, they would try their best to make Lupin a bit more family-friendly, including changing Lupin's car from a Mercedes to his iconic Fiat 500, but after 23 episodes, the show was canned due to poor ratings. 
However, like Star Trek before it, and Gundam after it, Lupin III saw an increase in its ratings in syndication. And so, with renewed interest in Lupin, Tokyo Movie Shinsha commissioned a second Lupin anime series, what we know as the Red Jacket series, or simply Lupin III Part 2. While it did have some of the manga's original edge to it, it was very much a Lupin for all audiences across Japan. This was the series that was most famously dubbed over here in America and aired on Adult Swim, and we will definitely talk about that dub and that cast when we talk about voice acting. And while it was successful running from 1977 to 1980, there was still a desire to make a Lupin anime that was close in spirit to Monkey Punch's original manga. And so was birthed the first ever Lupin movie, Lupin III, The Mystery of Mamo, directed by Lupin alum Soji Yashikawa, and overseen by a guy we talked about at length in our Future Boy Conan video, and even if he's not known as a director, he's still a very important figure, a guy named Yasuo Otsuka, legendary animator, mentor figure to both the aforementioned Takahata and Miyazaki, and an avid reader of the original Lupin manga. In addition to having an all-star staff, it was also given a budget of 500 million yen, which was unheard of at the time for an animated production. And lo and behold, it made almost double that at the box office, and would kind of get the ball rolling as anime being feasible at the box office. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself as far as Mystery of Mamo's legacy goes. So... That's the backstory. Who wants to give the premise of The Mystery of Mamo? I guess I will. <laughs> um, backstory of Mamo is that Lupin III is found dead, or supposedly dead, and the crew has to figure out um, who this the, the original body is. Um, sorry, I watched this like two weeks ago, so I'm a little... It's a little rusty in my brain. Tim, do you want to take over? Yeah, I can take this. Uh, let's just say that this is this movie is it's deceptively complicated, but also definitely not a simple movie. I mean, yes, I, I mean just to go off of what he was saying. Yes, the movie starts with Lupin being literally hung at the gallows, or so we see, or so we think, because not long after that. Zenigata, being his usual brazen self, is going to find the body and, you know, basically confirm for himself, only to discover that, hey, wait a minute, no, it doesn't look like that he's actually dead. But we shift away from that very quickly to them doing some hijinks in Egypt, and then you come back to Paris where, you know, we do a little tete-a-tete -tete with uh, Lupin and Fujiko, and that's when the whole thing starts to come across where... We know that Fujiko is working for this gentleman named Kyosuke Mamo, uh, no relation to the character in part one. And it looks as though that he's trying to find basically the immortality. And I'll just say this, if you think you know what you think this is for a Lupin movie, uh, no, you don't. That's not exactly how this one goes through this, <laughs> this time. And complicated is one word I would use to describe this movie. So... 
when did you guys first know about the mystery of Mamo, and what did you take away from watching it? First time that I uh, heard of Mystery of Mamo was, um, again, uh, listening to the a AWO podcast and, you know, them talking about it a little bit. I think they even did a, bit, a, a review of it a while ago, and that's what kind of inspired me to go ahead and get what was then a uh, a fairly new dvd from uh, the, from this little company called discotech just being like okay they've got it available why not get why not grab it from their direct market store so i grabbed it i watched it i didn't quite know what to make of it at first so i kind of put it away for a few years and then when the blu-ray of mamo came out i got it and then i rewatched it and i'm like Yo, this is actually really good. I'm, I, I was actually really surprised with how much I enjoyed it on second watch. And even going back to watching it for this podcast, I've, I've been very surprised at how much I've enjoyed it. I saw Mamo when I was maybe 14, 15. Uh, I had a VHS copy of it that uh, was one of the many anime VHSs I hid under my bed <laughs> as a teenager. Uh, raised in a conservative uh, household that did not like anime. I remember it being something that was confusing but enjoyable. I loved surrealism, and I loved kind of the off-the-cuff nature of Mama. Mama presents itself as very straightforward in the beginning, and then as it goes on, it is off the walls. And I remember really enjoying it, but fully understanding it until much later, uh, I picked I, as well, also picked up the Discotech DVD way back in the day and uh, loved it. I it, it was going back and reevaluating and appreciating it for kind of what it is at, without the lens of I'm 15 and I'm watching anime as a teenager to watching it in my adulthood was very different. I think I also heard Mystery Mamo mentioned on AWO, but I could be wrong. It might have been on another podcast. I did not know that it was Lupin's first theatrical movie. Whenever you say Lupin the Third and movie, people usually think the cast of Cagliostro, because that's the one that was directed by Hayao Miyazaki. But, after hearing some positive words about it, I decided to, you know, buy the Blu-ray, especially because... Oh, the amount of effort that Discotech Media put into that home release. One of their best BDs by a mile. I watched it, and I gotta say, I do enjoy it, but I do have a few caveats with it. Not enough where I can say I recommend it, but there are just some problems I have with the movie. Not enough where it breaks it, but one where I can say, yeah, it's a good movie for the most part. But let's, of course, start off, as always, with the visuals of the Mystery Mamo. And, as mentioned before, they gave this movie a budget of half a billion yen. And I'd say it kind of shows with what they're able to do on the big screen. I agree with that 100%. And maybe I didn't appreciate that initially, because, again, like you, I guess maybe I didn't quite catch that it was the very first... Lupin movie, so when it looked a, when it looked uh, very different from uh, from Cagliostro, it kind of tilted my head a little bit. But going back to that, I mean, yeah, it's the design that they go for. It is very much 
I think maybe the one Lupin project, maybe at least the uh, at least in the seventies in that early period, it's probably the one project that looks the most like it jumps out from uh, Monkey Punch's original work. Considering that this was made to be the Lupin movie that was more faithful to the original manga, it definitely shows, especially with how the characters are proportioned. For the past three episodes, I've reviewed shows where characters have rather lanky proportions. I didn't mean to be intentional with that, it just kind of happened. But these characters are the lankiest as far as character proportions go. Like, they've got these big square bodies with these tiny little pencil arms and legs, and nothing around this time looked like this. I mean, not even the Lupin TV series looks like this. No, not even part one looked like this. Not even part two looked like this. I think it's honestly what's the most charming thing about it in just animation presentation is that it does have that kind of straight-off-the-panel look to it. Uh, It's so faithful to the source material that you kind of can't compare it to any other piece of Lupin media at the time. Uh, it's just so its own beast. I mean, I don't think we get uh, sort of like the sketchy look like this um, until either the woman called Fujiko Mine or the Takeshi Koike trilogy. Oh, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I would say that the closest we get is the back end of part three where the art style shifts away from a more realistic-looking Lupin gang to one that looks more like the characters jump straight off the pages of Monkey Punch's original manga, for better or for worse. It's odd, but I also think, having seen a few of those episodes, I kind of appreciate that style, I think, a little bit more than I would have if I had seen it maybe ten years ago. I think for many Lupin fans, the art change in Part 3 is just extremely jarring. Like, all you need to do is watch the opening to the first 19 or so episodes of Part 3, and then watch something from one of the later episodes, and you'll be like, what's going on here? Why do these characters all look like they were drawn by Jim Davis or something? I don't know. Is this even the same series I'm watching? (laughs) Do we have a favorite character design of this? It can be Lupin's gang or one of the guest characters. Uh, I love Zenigata, or Zenigata and Jigen in this the most. I think their designs are wonderful. How they move, especially Jigen, how Jigen moves in this show, how his hat will, you know, kind of tip down. He furrows his brow. Like, it just, everything about his mo- motion is wonderful in this. I can agree with that, although I will give, uh, I-, I will give Mamo's designs some special credit for that. as. <laughs> I mean, as small as it is, it's nothing you've ever seen before in Lupin. It's in- instantly memorable. Oh, for sure. Based off of Paul Williams and the Phantom of Paradise. Oh, I can see that. Speaking of characters based on things, the two U.S. government officials, uh, General Stuckey, who is totally not former Nobel Peace Prize winner and noted war criminal Henry Kissinger, and his noble assistant Gordon based on somebody that only boomers who watch Fox News would know, G. Gordon Liddy. Or people who grew up in the D.C. area when he had his show in uh, in Washington in, in the 90s. <laughs> I love Gordon's design because it's just one big rectangle. <laughs> 
He's got a big <laughs> rectangular body, a big rectangular head, a big rectangular jawline, and a little pointy chin. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite design, though, is the henchman, Flinch. Or, as I have wrote down in my notes, Giant Kojak! <laughs> oh, man. Seriously, he looks like Telly Savalas. Oh, yeah, he does, kinda. No, no kidding on that. The movie looks good in stills, and it looks even better in motion. This has some really creative and fun chase scenes. From the opening chase scene at the pyramids, the helicopter chase through the streets of Paris, where people are shot and killed in graphic fashion. And then you follow that up with a with a huge tractor trailer, like, I don't know, Optimus Prime on steroids or something, chasing down and running over police, uh, police cars. The truck from Duel ain't got nothing on this. Eat your heart out, city escape truck chase. I kind of note the, of the violence of, like, pedestrians and how kind of shocking it is compared to if you were going from this, uh, from the Lupin TV shows. There's, there's a very, like, clear sense of danger, and I can't say, or even for just, like, pedestrians, I can't say I remember ever feeling that sense of danger in, like, the original uh, series. I get the feeling that the staff behind this movie were kind of using this film as a bellwether to see what they could get away with in the theater as opposed to being on television. Because you have to remember, this was around the time when the Gekiga movement was changing the medium of manga with comics that were aimed more at that adult salaryman blue-collar audience as well as the rise of pink film in the cinema. I, I could see that in particular. Us being discotheque fans, we know. Well, they're starting to release some of those that were starting to release some of those movies that you're describing through their uh, Nihon Nights line. If you know Mystery of Mamo from anywhere that isn't this movie, it's probably because you saw the sequence of Lupin at the beginning being hung in the Laserdisc arcade game Cliffhanger, which cobbled together several driving scenes from several different Lupin anime including this, the Castle of Cagliostro, the Fuma Conspiracy, and I think a few others, as well as dubbing the whole thing, where Lupin's name was changed to the incredibly creative Cliff. Brother. Oh, Cliff Jumper! Right, got it. <laughs> the best visual moment in the movie, though, is when Lupin is being chased through Mamo's palace, because they have a lot of fun with the architecture, with the landscapes. He gets chased through several paintings done by Salvador Dali, including the persistence of memory. It is one of the most striking moments in the entire movie. Just the moment that he just gets into those uh, paintings, it's just like, whoa, what? What's even going on it's here? It's honestly my favorite moment. It's so out there and just gonzo. The Escher-esque landscapes really aided along to show you that Mamo's manor isn't just some big rich guy hideaway. This man is making sure that you can't escape his compound filled with weird staircases and clones of Adolf Hitler. I was just about to mention that. Yeah, you, you, yeah same, because, oh, that that's one of those... I mean, especially in the dub, that's one of those moments that's just like, 
Yo, boy. <laughs> ah, cloning Adolf Hitler. Imagine if there were two clones of Adolf Hitler. Of course, don't you know anything about science? <laughs> I was just gonna, I was just gonna dub the clip in, but because you immediately knew what I was referencing, I'm leaving that in. Excellent. <laughs> I'm making a lot of Linkara references lately, and I don't know why. It's a visually stunning movie, although, and while it may not be as smooth as Castle of Cagliostro, I would say that from an aesthetic standpoint, this one's a lot more daring with its visuals. I can agree with that. It, it feels like no other Lupin project. Even, you know, the stuff that started to come out in the 80s and, and the 90s as well. This is wholly unique compared to a lot of a lot of the other adventures oh for sure and i think it you'll find echoes of it throughout lupin's history but nothing quite encapsulates it like mystery of Manal. do we have anything else to add about the visuals you know i'm not i'm not going to bring it up because it's the end but let's just say when we finally see what mamo actually is it's uh it, it's really one of those kinds of moments it's like okay yeah, we won't spoil that. But what we can spoil, though, is that the soundtrack is excellent. The 1977 Lupin anime introduced a key staff member into the fold, and that was Yuji Ono, longtime jazz fusion composer who was tasked with doing the OST to the 1977 Lupin anime, and he doesn't disappoint. The movie's soundtrack is very much a continuation of that iconic Lupin jazz score that we've come to know and love. Oh, it, instantly iconic. It's like the moment that you hear it, you know exactly uh, what's uh, going on. Like I, We discussed this at length when we talked about part one, that you know maybe the music fell a little maybe the music fell a little flat although you know <laughs> the uh, Charlie Kose stuff still is fun to listen to if nothing else I but, stand nice guy Lupin <laughs> but i mean there's just no comparison the moment that you hear the that you hear the horns and that riff you just know that ono's about ready to just drop a drop another masterpiece it's great hearing the official Loop on the Third theme song on the in the theater. Although I will say the Lupin theme song they used is not my favorite Lupin opening. That is the 1978 version that has the vocals on it. The second opening to the Red Jacket series with that beautiful Maurice Binder James Bond uh, title sequence. Right. I was about to say you're talking about the the second opening to part two. Yes. With my second favorite Lupin opening being Sexy Adventure. That's rock solid as well, yes. I mean, I've got nothing to add to this. It's, it's Everyone said the bullet points. Yuji Ono is a god, and the music is so wonderful and bombastic, and it's, it's everything you want in a Lupin soundtrack. While it is bombastic, I'll also give credit that his... Uh... That, that the more subtle moments that he does for, for some of the quieter moments in the film, those are actually really good as well. Oh, for sure. Although if I have any complaints, to go back to animation for a second, what is that title sequence? Yeah. I understand that cloning is a, is a major part of the themes of this, uh, of this movie, but 
Really? That's that's uh, that's all you could come up with for the, for this whole thing? It feels like it was an afterthought. And I got this one sequence that shows the cloning process uh, that we couldn't fit into this movie. Eh, just stick it as the opening credit sequence. Nobody didn't care about that. Well, hold on, because don't they use that? Don't they use at least a still from that in the movie at some point? Maybe, but I like, believe so. There was no excuse for you not to have a title sequence where we get to introduce the cast. I mean, especially when you consider what the end, what the ending sequence was like. Oh my god, that ending sequence animation is amazing. I need a gif of that on loop. <laughs> Speaking of the cast, now we get to voice acting. And for the first time on this show, we are looking at the full classic Lupin cast. Reprising their roles from part one, we of course have Yasuo Yamada as Lupin III... He's not famous as an anime voice actor, but in terms of dubbing American films, he's the Japanese voice of Clint Eastwood. He's Roddy McDowell in the Planet of the Apes movies. And the one that blew Tim's mind, he's the Japanese voice of Kermit the Frog. That's still amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. You guys need to hear Lupin Third singing the Rainbow Connection. May include that as a stinger. Jigen, as always, is played by Kiyoshi Kobayashi. May he rest in peace. Kobayashi is the longest-serving Lupin actor. As a matter of fact, he voiced Jigen since the pilot film in 1969 and only stopped being Jigen in, like, what, 2020? He did that one episode of Part 6 that was basically... That was basically your farewell to him, and then, yeah, that was it. Before passing the baton over to Akio Otsuka, a more than worthy successor in my eyes. Oh, definitely. You will also know Kyoshi Kobayashi as Watari in Death Note, Crystal Bowie in the similar Space Adventure Cobra, Aguil Dilaz in Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, Mohamed Avdol in the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure OVA, Adrian Rubinsky in Legend of the Galactic Heroes, and the narrator in Galgaigar. And lastly, returning from the 71 series is Goro Naya as Zenagata, who is Captain Okita in Space Battleship Yamato, Crocus in One Piece, Dr. Nanbara in Combattler V, the narrator in Kashan and Golden Boy, and Preston, I told you this before we started recording, he's the voice of Shocker. In the original Common Rider series, among other voices in the so Showa cool. era of Common Rider. Yeah, so he was also the great leader in uh, V3, which is the third, or no, second? Second TV yeah, series of Common Rider. Yeah, second TV series of Common Rider. But uh, yeah, I just an amazing Tokusatsu. The two actors who have joined our cast and will play these characters until either their retirement or their passing, are Makio Inoue as Goemon Ishikawa. His only other role of note that I could find is that he was the longtime voice of Captain Harlock. Meanwhile, Eiko Masayama steps into the role as Fujiko, most famous for being the voice of Cutie Honey in the original 1973 series. That's a quite a, a duo of, uh, <laughs> let's just say, a lovely uh, lady roles for her. You can also hear her as Ribbon Chan in Dr. Slump, 
Perman 3 in Fujiko Fujio's Perman series, Hanai Aoba in the Kabocha wine, and for all you Sailor Moon fans, she was the voice of Princess Kaguya in Sailor Moon S the Movie. As far as our guest characters, Ko Nishimura plays Mamo. He isn't a famous seiyuu, but he was very famous as a live-action actor, a regular in the films of Akira Kurosawa, including The Bad Sleepwell, Yojimbo, High and Low, and he was also in the 1973 Lady Snowblood movie, and he was head of the Yagyu clan in the 1974 Lone Wolf and Cub TV series. Now that's a deep filmography right there. Oh yeah. I think once you have a 500 million yen budget, you can hire actors who normally wouldn't do voice acting. And his performance as Mamu is rather chilling. His henchman, Flinch, is voiced by Shozo Izuka, famous as being Nappa in Dragon Ball Z, Ryu Hose in Mobile Suit Gundam, Benkei in Get a Robo Armageddon, Tetsugyu in Giant Robo, Genya in Millennium Actress, and every villain in every tokusatsu series ever. Seriously, <laughs> look at Shozo Izuka's credits for tokusatsu. You'll be here all day. Dang, man. I am looking at his voice credits for tokusatsu like, he's been doing tokusatsu voiceovers since the original 1975 Go Ranger. And I mean, even like modern stuff like uh, Ultraman X, he was M1, uh, he was in Ghost Sager, Voice Logger, like tons of tons of modern stuff as well. Like he's been doing tokusatsu for decades. Chief Stucky, aka not Henry Kissinger, is played by Toru Ohira. And it is fitting that a character based on one of the most evil men who ever occupied the White House with Henry Kissinger is played by the Japanese voice of Darth Vader. Oh, God. He's also the <laughs> voice of Moguro Fukuzo, the laughing salesman, Dekapan in Osamatsukun, and Dr. Nambu in Gachaman. Oh, as far as dubbing American stuff goes, he was the rock biter in The NeverEnding Story, the voice of Pete in many Disney properties like Goof Troop, A Goofy Movie, Kingdom Hearts. He's the Japanese voice of Fred Flintstone, and for the longest time, he was the Japanese voice of Homer Simpson. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> His assistant, Gordon, is played by Hidekatsu Shibata, the voice of King Bradley in Fullmetal Alchemist, both series, the third Hokage, Hiruzen Sarutobi in Naruto, Geese Howard in Fatal Fury, the movies and OVAs, Mr. X in Tiger Mask, Baron Ashura's male half in Mazinger Z, and the narrator in Fairy Tale. Two more voiceover credits and then we'll move on, but these are actually pretty cool. During the scene where Jigen is being interrogated, not Henry Kissinger plays a voice recording between the President of the United States and the President of the Soviet Union. The President of the United States is voiced by Akatsuka Fujio, famous gag manga creator of Tensai Bakaban. He created one of the first magical girls with Akko-chan, 
and is best known for his series Osomatsu-kun. Best known today for its incredibly funny reboot, Mr. Osomatsu. The Soviet president is played by the even more legendary Iki Kajiwara. And this man pretty much made the blueprint for what we know today as the modern shonen genre. Creator of Star of the Giants, Karate Master Ichidai, Tiger Mask, and perhaps one of the, if not the most important manga ever made, Ashtano Joe. That's power right there. Oh my gosh. The more you know. Yeah. <laughs> so on to the dub, or I should say dubs plural. Because, oh man. Tim shared a meme with me once of the used car salesman who slaps the hood of a car. And the used car salesman is slapping the DVD of The Mystery of Mamo saying, this thing can fit so many audio tracks on it. And because this license has been passed around like a joint, the Mystery of Mama was dubbed, not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times in its lifespan. Once by Streamline Pictures, once by Manga UK, once by Pioneer Genion, and the first dub produced for it was done by Toho Studios for Japan Airlines. Absolutely incredible. And again, you know, we, we've said it before and we'll say it again. Uh, Discotech has basically become central station for anything Lupin. And that's really kind of what they've, you know, the foundation pretty much of where they built their brand from. And just them including those four dubs just shows you how much, how much they appreciate the history of this character. And it's just amazing the work that they put into it. In the liner notes for Lupin the Third, Mike Toole has a story about how they were trying to track down the master tapes for that dub, and they called up Toho's offices in Los Angeles, and he said, yeah, hi, uh, we're looking for the audio reel of this dub that you made for a Lupin movie in the 1970s, and the person at the Toho offices said, yeah, we've got that dub. It's stored in our archives. And sure enough, they got it in pristine condition. It's sadly only in mono because this was dubbed for international flights. And as such, it has a lot of strange name changes. Lupin is still Lupin, but now you have Jigen being Dan Dunn. Fujiko is now Margot. Zenigata is Detective Ed Scott. And Goemon is creatively renamed to Samurai. <laughs> Because why not? <laughs> the acting in the Toho dub is on par with what you'd get for a lot of dubs from this time period for, like, the Godzilla films and what have you. But I don't think it's that bad. Oh, it's serviceable. I mean, it, it's... Well, I think you put the best example head forward to the Godzilla dubs. They've... Toho had a history of doing in-house English dubs... Uh, for their international releases. Most of the time, these were not used. Um, they would be... AIC Pictures would put out a few. But it's it's really cool to find it on this DVD. Like, it's certainly like a piece of history that you don't hear often. 
In spite of the name changes, it's perhaps the dub that's most faithful to the original script, and plus, it also gave us this episode's subtitle, as there is a compilation of the Toho Lupin dub of the characters all going, Don't be stupid, which is repeated several times in that dub. Don't be stupid. 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 Don't talk stupid. Stupid. Onto the Streamline Pictures dub. I usually like a lot of Streamline dubs. This one didn't click for me, and I don't know why. Uh, kind of on the opposite uh, of that one. I actually think that this is probably one of the better ones uh, for me. And I, and again, maybe it's because I've I've also you know I've seen the uh, the two part two episodes that Streamline dubbed previously, but I actually really enjoyed uh, the Streamline dub for this one. I mean, I can understand maybe not enjoying it, but it, this was actually one of my favorites. It does have a pretty nice dub cast. Bob Bergen plays Lupin. And also, unlike the Streamline dub of the Castle Cagliostro, they don't have to call Lupin Wolf. I don't know, maybe it was because I watched this dub with the subtitles turned on. But I've heard better from Streamline, although it is worth it just to hear Robert Axelrod as Mamo. I was going to say, that was kind of my, sh my standout on that dub, was Robert Axelrod. Rest in peace. I thought he was probably the best performance out of that dub. Robert Axelrod playing a villain in an American localization of a Japanese production. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> Onto the Manga UK dub, and honestly, this was my favorite of the bunch. I thought the acting was pretty good, I really liked Bill Dufresne as Lupin, may he rest in peace, and it also features one of my favorite obscure dub voice actors, Sean Barrett as Zenigata. It's faithful enough to the original script, and the acting is pretty solid throughout. Now, see, again, we're gonna go on opposites. I actually wasn't a huge fan of this one I, I mean i mean not to say that it's a bad one but i think maybe i think maybe personally just the voice that they chose that uh that uh, he decided to use for lupon just didn't do it for me nothing against it of course i just think that personally i like the streamline one more than i like this one yeah, i know that i honestly like the streamline more than the manga in the tent one as well i'm guessing i'm alone here Sorry. <laughs> eh, whatever suits yourself. Like, every dub on this is somebody's favorite. But of course, I think we can all agree that where it's at is the Pioneer dub. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. With the classic dub cast for Lupin. Tony Oliver as Lupin. Richard Epcar as Jigen. Lex Lang as Goemon. Michelle Ruff as Fujiko. And Dan Lorge as Zenigata. I don't think enough has been said about how that cast and that dub have really been, I, I think, one of the, um, it was honestly one of the standouts uh, of dubbing in the early 20th century. I mean, especially when you're talking about shows that just, I mean, you think about this. I mean, Adult Swim had to have taken a pretty big risk at the time to even get Cartoon Network to say okay on this, because again, they haven't played an anime series this old looking since Speed Racer back in the 90s. But this was kind of what I feel like, you know, this is again what Cartoon Network did at the time. They took 
chances on kind of offbeat stuff like this and you know it's why it had the reputation it had for so long and yeah the, just the dub cast as well as just the <laughs> the script writing in there just being completely i won't say loose but it's absolutely one of the best examples of i guess you could say a punched up dub that you could possibly look at i believe gag dub is the word that you're looking for thank you thank you i actually had the pleasure of speaking with an engineer at anime week in atlanta eddie correa shout out if you're listening eddie you're the man and he said that the person whose idea it was to kind of take liberties with the dub script was none other than Richard Epcar himself. You know, that's actually... I mean, I'm not actually 100% surprised at that, and I mainly because I've heard that Richard, in the scripting process, is, is a little bit meticulous, but, you know, I think that he recognized with this project, like, it could be a lot of fun if he just decides to just, you know, kind of go nuts with it. And, I mean, we saw, I mean, we saw some of that as well when... You know, when uh, he was at Otakon a couple years ago and we got to see him bring out some of the outtakes uh, uh, that, that he had for Lupin. Everyone involved in that dub seems like they were having the time of their lives. Oh, no question about it. And while, granted, some of the dub choices, some of the dubbing and voice choices haven't exactly aged the best, there's still some really standout ones. You know, there's a lot of Lupin dub compilations that feature clips out of context, but I'm also going to argue that even watching those clips in context, they're still very funny. Absolutely. I mean, if there's, like, a perfect dub cast in any, like, anime, I would say Lupin does it with this this dub cast. It's, I mean, they're, they're iconic. Honestly, the only person that hasn't reprised their role in future Lupin projects was Dan Lorge's Zenigata, and that's just because he chose to retire and was replaced with an equally capable actor in Doug Erholtz. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of Erholtz at the beginning, but as time has gone on and as I've heard him in Part 4, Part 5, and Part 6, I've grown to really enjoy uh, his take on the character. He's great. I do miss Dan Lorge's angry Humphrey Bogart impression as Zenigata. Yeah, true enough. Honestly, the manga UK dub is my favorite, although I will go back and revisit it to see if my feelings change on it. But to me, if you're going to watch any dub, your best bet is to watch the Pioneer Genion dub. It's just fantastic, is all I have to say. Yes, agreed. Oh, for sure. But now we come to what we call the primetime discussion for Lupin the Third, And we've already said a lot about the mystery of Mamo. It is a visually stunning film. It has a great soundtrack, excellent English dub. I don't know how much more we can say about it other than, does the mystery of Mamo hold up as a film? And how does it compare to some other theatrical outings for Lupin. Obviously, the big one is the Castle of Cagliostro, but I don't think that's a fair comparison. Is That's kind of its own thing. Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, I, I think comparing anything in the Lupin franchise to Cagliostro is just not being fair at that, at that point. I think it really stands on its own. I think that it's not my favorite piece of Lupin film, but... What it is, is phenomenal. Uh, it's trippy, it's surrealist, it's fun. It's it, one of my favorites, definitely my top five. 
if I can compare it to the Castle of Cagliostro, it's that Mystery of Mamo is a lot more daring, not just in its animation, but in its storytelling. Because Castle of Cagliostro is a very simple story. Lupin's gotta rescue Clarice from Cagliostro before he gains access to an ancient treasure. That's all there is to it. In this case, the plot to Mystery of Mamo is a lot more involved. There's political intrigue, there's all sorts of fun character dynamics. It's a movie that tries to do a lot in a very small amount of time, and I'd say it succeeds for two-thirds of it. But I do think it stumbles a little at the end. Let me let me ask you this, Nate. Do you think that maybe it hits the climax just a little too uh, a little too early? I don't think it hits the climax a little too early. I think that it doesn't hit hard enough. Like, it's not so much a jaw-dropper as it is a head-scratcher. Mm, I, I, can, I can kind of agree with that. We've been calling this movie Lupin Third: The Mystery of Mamo, but that was not its original subtitle. It gained that subtitle through a U.S. collector, and there's a whole story about that. But its title when it was distributed internationally was Lupin versus the Clones, which pretty much gives away the entire plot twist of the whole movie. It's like calling the twins arc from Black Lagoon, Two kids gone die tonight! <laughs> the whole plot twist surrounding who Mamo is, I think is kind of the film's biggest stumbling point. Because everything else up to that ranges from great to downright excellent. Mystery of Mamo, as a movie, has everything you would ever want in a Lupin film. So, basically, you're not the fan of the... You're not a fan of the uh, revelation that he's just been continuously cloning himself. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you guys this, since you're more familiar with Lupin than I am. Daryl Surratt from Anime World Order's big critique of Lupin Third is that Lupin works best when he's dealing with a villain or plots that are grounded in reality with maybe some historical fiction elements, but for the most part, he stays true to his pulp roots. Once Lupin gets involved in things with fantasy, sci-fi, or the supernatural, that's when Lupin sort of loses the plot or takes a hit in quality or it struggles with its oh. storytelling. Do you agree or disagree with that? Disagree. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's very dependent. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's a uh, that it's a one to one type of thing because I, I think remembering sort of the uh, origins of Lupin and sort of the time, especially that part one and part two came out when you started seeing stuff like James Bond coming to come into prominence, and a lot of James Bond, it doesn't go to be on the supernatural but it does have like sort of like these you know the super science and stuff that's not necessarily grounded in reality itself and while you can make arguments about the quality of a lot of those bond movies i mean you can say the exact same thing for lupon i think it's dependent on the project itself and whether or not it hits i think for mamo i'm not sure if the revelation uh hurts it it hurts it as much as you think it does, but I'm also wondering, would it have worked better had it just been, you know, Lockwood pulling the long con over everyone? I mean, I don't know if it would have worked in that in that regard. 
One of the standout episodes from the 1971 series is when Lupin is dealing with a guy who claims to be a time traveler. That he can just go to the past and bring back any artifact he wishes, or that he can manipulate time itself. Only for the episode to reveal that his whole shtick about being a time traveler who has a time machine is just a clever ruse. This is also the episode that gave us that iconic image of Jigen, Lupin, and Goemon all laughing simultaneously. Yeah, and then they brought him back for the uh, 45th anniversary special, and he actually had a working time machine for that one. Oh, God, <laughs> that sounds awful. It actually works very much to its advantage. I, I will sit here and say that. I, I it, it works for that because, you know, again, the first half of that entire special is effectively remaking the very first episode of uh, part one. And then I think the second half, it's just all about exploring sort of like the connections between the main five characters. And I think it's actually a better special than a lot of people give it credit for. And that's sort of one thing that I think Mystery Mamo exceeds at is that it does a lot of playing with the character dynamics for Lupin the Third. Again, to compare it to the cast of Cagliostro, in that, all of Lupin's gang is working together as a unit to achieve their end goal. Whereas here, we see them actively fighting with each other. Yeah, and I should point out, what is the other thing that's missing from this movie that you see in most nor in most other uh, Lupin movies? I wouldn't know. You don't have the uh, movie-specific female character. So we that's true. So we don't have our uh, Bond girl? Basically, like you know, there's there's no Clarice, there's there's no uh, oh, what was her name in the first uh, Letitia? Yeah, yeah. There's no character like that. Like every single thing about this with Mamo is you know just the five characters dealing with kind of their own thing, and yeah, the dynamic breaks down. But then you also kind of see what happens when the dynamic breaks down. It doesn't break down for super long. And the fact that we don't have anybody introduced to disrupt that chemistry works to the movie's advantage. Absolutely. Nobody comes in to sort of hijack Lupin away from his mates. They're always seen together. They bicker with each other. And of course, and of course, in the midst of it all, we've got Zenigata chasing after Lupin the entire time. And being just completely over his head with everything that's going on. That opening scene between Lupin and Zenigata when Zenigata goes into the tomb of Dracula. Absolutely brilliant. Like, you can show somebody the opening to the Mystery of Mamo and they'll immediately get what Lupin's all about. And they'll immediately get the dynamics between him and Zenigata. It shows both Lupin at his highest and at his lowest at the same time. This is not the Lupin from the Castle of Cagliostro where he is very much that gentleman thief. Lupin is pretty much doing this all for himself. He's doing this all for himself, and he's doing this all to screw around with Mamo. I think that that's uh, a point that I, I think I've heard brought up about this movie, that he's just doing it to just screw around with him. And, you know, I mean, especially when you consider the part where he gets scanned by Mamo. Oh, one of the best scenes in the movie. Without question. That's what I was talking about when I'm saying, do you think it hits the climax too soon? Because it really does feel like that's the peak of the movie, and then you still have like another 30, 45 minutes after that. And maybe it doesn't quite finish up as strong as it needs to? I can definitely see that argument. 
I still think the, the last 30, 40 minutes are really enjoyable. Oh, no question. They are. I'm just thinking that there's nothing. Yeah. There. I'm just thinking that maybe if that moment was maybe a little bit later, a little closer to the end, maybe it, maybe it, it, it's able to carry it to the end a little bit better. That's that's kind of what I'm going for. Yeah, I do think that the final few minutes do drag a bit too much. And as I said, I'm not very much a fan of the twist regarding the revelation of Mamo. I don't want to say it comes out of nowhere, but it's just really, really convoluted. It is. Convoluted, but it's very genre, and I think that's fun about it. I, I think Lupin works for me at, just personally as a character that can fit into any sort of box you put him in. Whether it be science fiction, fantasy, whether it be um, just, you know, pulp. I think it's fun to have those genre elements in Mamo because that's what Lupin has become. Lupin is a character that can be put into stories about aliens, stories about vampires, stories about anything. It's really a versatile cast and it's a versatile character that can go into so many different boxes of stories. And I just, I don't know, I, with uh, going back to the quote that you had before, I just don't know if I agree with it. I don't agree with the idea that Lupin can only be in this like, pulp novel style. I feel like Lupin can be anything. Yeah, like, don't take my comments from earlier to think that I'm saying that I'm 100% in agreement with uh, that line from Surratt. I mean, we all have our preferences. Maybe oh, for sure. Maybe I prefer the ones that are a bit more grounded, but I'm also saying, like, look, if you can make something that's a little more gonzo out there work, give it a shot, if nothing else. I mean, I if it works, great. If it doesn't, well, okay, but I'm still... What's the worst that's happened? I've just spent, yeah, I've just spent like ninety minutes with some of my favorite characters, so it can't all be that that bad. Now the worst that happened is Return of Pycall. The less said about that, the better. I think that <laughs> it works up until like the very, very end where we see Mamo's true form. That's when it gets really out there. Yeah. Um. Again, we won't spoil what what the uh, what the revelation is. Uh, just we already have but who cares yeah it's just it's just so bizarre but that being said even if it doesn't stick its landing all that well it is still a solid end and the ending credit sequence with lupon and zenigata is worth it alone yes <laughs> they're both chasing each other but not for the reason you expect I still say, though, that everything leading up to the big reveal, though, is excellent. And can I also say how uh, how Lupin uh, wins that one part of the battle is actually very clever and creative? Oh, yeah. You mean uh, Chekhov's katana? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Not gonna say how he uses that katana, but it's very clever. And a fun little subversion of what is a staple among Lupin gags. So let me ask you this about Mystery Mamo. I think that it is a great movie, at least until like the final ten or so minutes. Where it goes from being a great movie to a great movie that kind of stumbles a bit at the end. 
Would you say this is a great entry point for fans who want to check out Lupin? I'm not 100% sure if it is. Like, not that I think that there shouldn't be, you know, a question of entry points for this, because as someone once said, every comic book is someone's first. Just like how, I mean, for that, I use that for this one. Every entry point for Lupin is going to be different. I'm not sure if this is the best first impression for Lupin the Third that I would give to someone who's not already familiar with the character. This is de this definitely feels like, I don't know if I would like this as much if I wasn't already sort of like neck deep in Lupin the Third fandom over God knows how many years. I, I would suggest as a first, just because it was my first. It was my introduction to Lupin and the world and the characters. And it made, I mean, it made enough of an impression on me that I continued to watch Lupin. I mean, much later down the road, but I, I think it's got all the elements of what makes Lupin's cast fun and entertaining. I think it kind of lets them each shine in their own special way. And, you know, I think even it doesn't have that, you know, token Lupin girl, as y'all put it, kind of the Bond girl-esque extra character. So it's got time for everyone to be more fleshed out. And it's got that iconic Lupin soundtrack to go with its great visuals, too. Yeah, definitely. So that so that helps uh, quite a bit. I'm not saying that, uh, that I would uh, do a hard no on that. I'm just saying that this is pretty um, heavily concentrated Lupin. Like, this is... If Lupin was liquor, this is going for hard stuff right away. Like maybe ease in a little bit with maybe ease in a little bit with maybe the TV series in Cagliostro and maybe some of the other specials. But if you want to go ahead and jump in with Mamo first, by all means. I mean, one way or another, you know, more people liking Lupin is always a good thing. I would say the TV series, probably part two if they're okay with its episodic format, or part four as a good jumping on point. Yeah, part four is, I think, you know, a great modern depiction of Lupin. Really kind of, you know, you could say kicking off like a, a new wave of uh, Lupin fandom here. He, not just over there, but over here especially. Like, I mean, I think I was surprised as anyone when, when the announcement came out that not only was most of the original cast coming back to dub Lupin, but they were actually going to get it on... Uh, on Adult Swim as well. Like, I was stunned when I saw that news initially. There's also always the Castle of Cagliostro, which we've mentioned a few times, but I think that's a better introduction to Miyazaki than it is with Lupin. Because if you Probably. watch the Castle of Cagliostro first and then watch any of the other Lupin series, you're gonna be a bit jarred with how Lupin is portrayed in that movie compared to how he is portrayed everything else. I'd also say, like, if you want a bit more of the harder Lupin, go and check out the Takeshi Koike OAVs. Those are yeah. excellent. Certainly still on my list. I just haven't, uh, I just haven't grabbed them yet. I've seen two of the three of them. Jigen's Gravestone is great. Goemon's Blood Spray is amazing. I have not seen Fujiko's Lie. Well, we know that they're on sale on, uh, uh, what's the term that I saw? Uh, uh. Crunchy stuff, I guess, is what I saw. Just <laughs> the call it now. Yeah, like, that works, that works. Preston, uh, what would you consider to be your entry points for Lupin? Oh, uh, well, definitely this. The uh, part two, I really like, and I would totally suggest that. Um, honestly, like, 
One of the things I tell people is to have a TV special. Just grab a random TV special. That's how I've gotten so many people into Lupin. There's so many wonderful, like, weird flavors in them, and it can appeal to, like, a multitude of audiences. Yeah, I, I, that, those are kind of my, my go-tos. I'd say one of the more recent specials, Goodbye Partner, is a good entry point for Lupin. That's a great one. Yeah, him, uh, Lupin, wearing the black jacket in there, right? Yeah. Uh, one I, I like to go to a lot is Miss by a Dollar. I've heard, I've heard good things about that one. Also, the recent Angel Tactics is really fun that Discotech put out, um, plugging Discotech, even though they don't pay me. <laughs> <laughs> they don't pay any of us. We just love their work so much. <laughs> and they love us back. So on the whole, while the Mystery of Mamo isn't a perfect Lupin outing, I would say that for the most part, for 90% of it, it's a great movie. Do we have any final thoughts about the Mystery of Mamo before we wrap? Um, I would just probably say that if there's, if, you know, if you're on YouTube and you decide now you want to learn a little bit more about this, there are two really good video essays on uh, on Mystery of Mamo. Um, I believe that one from from Kaiser Beams, I think is, is yes, the one. yeah, the Kaiser Beams one, and there's another one that was put out last year by Infinite Snow Productions. Uh, both of them really go, uh, really dig in deep on Mama, and I think are really great resources at, uh, for this movie. I'd suggest uh, listening to the Texas Cyburns and Cigarettes, a loop on the third podcast. They have great insight into the series. Uh, they are all lifelong fans and way more knowledgeable about the book than I am. And uh, they're also really good friends. So. If you're looking for a good resource, that would be that would be my direction. And before we uh, wrap the show, I want to bring back an old little gem, something that I totally did not steal from two other anime websites. Why the 1970s was a better decade for animation in Japan than America. Because the 1970s was the start of anime's golden age in Japan, the date that I always use is 1972, because that's when Mazinger Z and Gotcha Man first came out and made both Dynamic Planning, Toei, and Tatsunoko a lot of money. First anime that got major merch deals, too. Meanwhile in America, all the major animation studios had shuttered their animation divisions. Many of the longtime veterans either retired or moved on to other projects. And what we were left with was soulless garbage from the likes of Ruby Spears, Filmation, and the Hanna-Barbera Animation Factory. And 1978 is a perfect example of the disparity in quality between countries. Because 1978 was the year Japan got a show that you and I talked about along with a special guest, Tim. 1978 was the year of Future Boy Conan. A fantastic series. Absolutely. Miyazaki's first debut, but even ignoring that piece of trivia, it's a great series in and of itself, and one that I heartily recommend. If you're looking for any anime series from the 1970s to watch, I'd say Future Boy Conan is a great introduction to 70s anime. Speaking of literary adaptations, this was also the year that gave us Studio Knack's adaptation of The Little Prince, 
which famously aired here in America on Nickelodeon. On the shoujo front, we got the adaptations of Here Comes Miss Modern and the second Aim for the Ace anime, New Aim for the Ace. One that I'm sure will be uh, pressed to Blu-ray before too long. Oh, I'm just saying, that's what I've been waiting for, honestly, is Shining Aim for the Ace. 1978 was also the year of Leiji Matsumoto, as this was the year where he put out Starzinger, which was huge in Japan for its time, and is still huge in Europe, particularly in Italy, where to this day you will see the odd Starzinger cosplay at a modern Italian anime convention. It was also the year that two of his biggest series came out on TV in Japan, Captain Harlock and the Galaxy Express 3-9. With a rather fun English uh, opening for that one. <laughs> and while this isn't technically Matsumoto, he did work on this series. This was also the year the second season of Space Battleship Yamato came out, as it was localized here in America, the Comet Empire of Star Blazers. And it was also the year for its second movie, Farewell Space Battleship Yamato. For Giant Robots, we got the last installment of Tadao Nagahaba's Robot Romance Trilogy with Toshio Daimos, and the second Tamino-directed mecha anime series, the extremely silly Daitarn 3. So we are one step away from Tomino redefining mecha with Gundam one year later, but in 78, he was making what has to be the wackiest, craziest, silliest robot series that, if Ethan is correct when we eventually get to it, ends on kind of a bummer. Not as big a bummer as Zambot 3, which we reviewed, but it's as Tamino as Tamino an ending you can get. On the theatrical front, in addition to the mystery of Mamo, we also got the adorably depressing Ringing Bell. Oh boy. And the first Phoenix anime movie. Meanwhile, in America, we got the all-new Popeye Hour, which, my friend Chase can tell you, any Popeye cartoon made after the 1950s ain't worth a damn. Can't really disagree with that. We also got Scooby-Doo clone number 46857 and 46858 with The Buford Files and The Galloping Ghost. Oh, God. The anthology show Tarzan and the Super 7, featuring a bunch of old cartoons that your parents watched that nobody else remembers or cares about. And if you really want to see the gap between Japan and America, we are one year removed from the first Star Wars movie coming out. And what does American television give us? Galaxy Goof-Ups. I repeat, Japan is giving us sci-fi epics like Space Battleship Yamato, Captain Harlock, and the Galaxy Express 3-9, Whereas Hanna-Barbera gives us Yogi Bear and friends, but they're in space. I'm, I admit that I'm a little kinder on on uh, this than most, but even I have to look at that comparison and be like, just like, woof. But why are they in space? There's no reason for them to be in space! And Preston, this one will really float your boat. 78 was also the year we got Hanna-Barbera's Godzilla cartoon. Oh. Oh, I threw up on that. <laughs> yeah, the one that gave us Godzuki. Zuki, yeah. 
Oh, I used to watch that all the time as a kid. Yeah. It's kind of depressing when Godzilla, the animated series, the one that was kind of a pseudo-sequel to the awful Roland Emmerich movie, holds up better than the 78 Godzilla cartoon. Oh, definitely. However, it wasn't all bad in America as we got Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings movie this year. Yeah, this was still at the time where even Disney had, uh, you know, recalibrated after Walt's uh, death in the 60s. So, you know, everyone was kind of struggling at that point. But, you know, Bakshi was probably the one person at that moment, at least until Don Bluth in the mid 80s, really came through with uh, some of the bigger stuff. But even then, it, it was, oh boy, it was a rough time. Speaking of struggles, uh, 78 was also the year we got Watership Down. And on that uh, pleasant note... The, that one was uh, British, so I just decided to include it just for posterity's sake. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Even Europeans were making better cartoons than us Americans. In the end, while it may not be perfect, I think what Mystery of Mamo represents isn't just Lupin's success on the big screen, but it paved the way for more cinematic anime to follow. And I'm just speculating, but I was just thinking about how Mystery of Mamo had this ripple effect on anime at the movies in Japan. Because the 70s is not a fruitful decade for anime at the movies. You I mean, it wasn't a fruitful decade for movies in general in Japan. No, I mean, but, but, you're, but you're right when you th consider that, because... It was Mamo in 78, and then Cagliostro in 79, and then, well, you know, kind of a one-two punch, and then after that, well, I think history is uh, is obvious with that. Because you had the anime-rama stuff at the beginning of the decade, which was incredibly experimental and really pushed the envelope, but those movies were not successful. No, they've only gotten, they've only gotten their regard from the art house set, you know, and, well, from discotheque hardcore fanboys 50 years after the fact. The only other anime movies of note that came out in the 70s were the annual dynamic planning movies, the likes of Mazinger Z vs. Ghetto Robo, Mazinger Z vs. Devilman, Mazinger Z vs. Black General, and so on. There was also the first Yamato movie, but that one was pretty much a compilation. With the mystery of Mamo, if this doesn't get made, if it doesn't succeed, we don't get the castle of Cagliostro. We don't get Miyazaki, Takahata, and Yasuo Otsuka going over to Topcraft and making Nausicaa, and eventually going out to found Studio Ghibli. We don't get the anthology films of the 80s and 90s like Robot Carnival, Neo Tokyo, and Memories. We don't get Mamoru Oshii striking out to make movies on his own. We don't get things like Project Aiko. I don't even think we get the OVA boom of the 1980s. Like, I'm only speculating, but I think the ripple effect of Mystery of Mamo is a lot greater than we think. Oh, definitely. Like, again, we can't be... You know, we can only speculate on this because, you know, we're, we're, we're just looking at this in retrospect. But, I mean, I don't think that it's beyond the pale to think that this movie doesn't... I mean, if only one of the two Lupin movies succeed, does the Lupin franchise continue on as long as it has? Because I Mystery mean, of Mamo made double its budget at the box office, and Castle of Cagliostro was even more successful. Yeah, like, if, if either of those movies fail, I mean... I mean, who knows? That probably shows that... Who knows? Maybe the franchise, you know... 
I won't say dies on the vine, but maybe the franchise goes in whatever direction the more successful one went, and who knows, maybe its appeal becomes more limited, if you will. Whatever the reason, though, I still think that's another reason to watch Mystery of Mamo. Not just because it's a great Lupin film in and of itself, but because for its historical significance. There's a lot of what-ifs surrounding this film, and if you're into anime history, you'll find yourself pondering what if this movie didn't succeed? What if it didn't get made? Exactly. Uh, definitely. And on that note, Preston, plug your stuff. Hi, uh, you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Robotechnology. Uh, I tweet about uh, Tokusatsu, Godzilla, and things of that nature. Um, you can also find me on the podcast uh, Rocketo Punchy and uh, the sister podcast Ultra Cuties, where we are currently talking about Ultra Q. Um, you, and uh, my other podcast. Ugh, oh my gosh, sorry, I'm tripping over my words. Uh, my other podcast, uh, Not a Bad Kaiju, where I talk about tokusatsu movies or kaiju-adjacent media. Thank you very much, Preston. And if you like the show, please be sure to leave a like, subscribe to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, any place to get your podcasts from. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Show. And you can follow me on Instagram at NateTendoWee, where I am usually posting photos of myself at sporting events, although uh, <laughs> the Devils uh, haven't been playing good as of late, so uh, Lord knows if I'm ever going to go to a game this season. I mean, I haven't gone hey, to a Giants game all year. <laughs> hey, you can laugh about the Giants. You guys still beat us twice. Is it box lacrosse season yet? <laughs> And speaking of lacrosse, all the luck to the PLL as well as they uh, make as they take the next step in their league's uh, formation. Absolutely. Go chaos. Yeah, I'm going to be a whip snakes guy myself. I just go for the chaos because their roster is effectively that of my favorite NLL team, the Buffalo Bandits. I get you. We've gone off track for a moment here. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, <laughs> we are veering into the realm of romantic comedy. And it's a rom-com about a delinquent that is struck with a severe case of body horror. As he wakes up one day to find that his right hand, the one that he uses to regularly beat up any thugs who stand in his way, is replaced with the miniature version of a girl who deeply admires him from afar. And he must learn to live with this change and get to know her better as we look at 2004's romantic comedy, Midori Days. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. This is Tim the Otaku Jock. This is Pat McFarlane. And we're signing off and saying, be grateful to democracy. Zon